cryptocurrency speculation has pulled in a large population of people who do not know what they are investing in. If you hear about an investment of $1,000 turning into $1 million, it's tempting to get sucked in yourself. For most of these everyday people that are getting involved in cryptocurrencies, the game is completely rigged. A large percentage of market activity is driven by pump and dumps. A pump and dump is a conspiracy to trick investors into buying a currency. An insider group commits the pump and dump. This is accomplished by purchasing the currency ahead of time. For example, a currency like, let's say, Tron, which has clearly been earmarked as a fraudulent, counterfeited, white paper cryptocurrency. These insiders could purchase the currency ahead of time and then promote it on Twitter and Telegram and Reddit. And then the outsiders, the people who are not the insiders, the people who did not purchase the currency ahead of time, fall victim to the promotion of the cryptocurrency, and they buy it after the fast run-up in value. The currency then crashes, and the outsiders are left holding the bag. Pump and dumps are not a new phenomenon. They have happened with worthless penny stocks for a long time. That's what the Wolf of Wall Street was about. One thing that is new is the ease with which new cryptocurrencies are being created. Launching an ICO is easy. Marketing it is cheap. Pumping and dumping has never been more accessible. And buying these currencies is quite easy as well. This has led to the perfect storm of naive investment capital. Bruno Squartz is the CEO and owner of Bitfalls, a site with blog posts, news, and information about cryptocurrencies. He wrote a blog post called The Anatomy of a Pump and Dump Group, which details how cryptocurrency pump and dumps have been used to swindle investors out of millions of dollars. This was one of the more interesting pieces on cryptocurrencies, that I've read in the last couple months, and I was really excited to have him on. I look forward to having him on again in the future. If you are looking for an internship, you can apply to the Software Engineering Daily internship at softwaredaily.com jobs. And if you're looking to recruit engineers, you can also post jobs for your company there. It's completely free to post jobs and to apply for jobs. We're hoping to find interns to contribute to the Software Daily Open Source Project which is our mobile apps, as well as our web app, which you can find at softwaredaily.com. You can download the apps in the iOS or the Android App Store. And they have all of our episodes indexed, and they're categorized. We've got a recommendation engine. We've got related links and discussions and some community features on the way. They will be in a very soon poll request that is in the works this week. Meetups for Software Engineering Daily are being planned. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup if you want to register for an upcoming meetup. In March, I will be visiting Datadog in New York and HubSpot in Boston. And in April, I will be at Telesign in LA. Again, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup to join our meetup group. And with that, let's get on with this episode. Bruno Schwartz is a blogger for Bitfalls and is a journalist around the cryptocurrency space. Bruno, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you because you have been writing about pump and dumps a little bit, and you're writing about some other topics of somewhat disreputable activity in the cryptocurrency space. And I want to get into some of the specifics of the wrongdoing that you're reporting on. But let's start a little bit higher level. When did you start writing about cryptocurrencies? Why did you get involved in this space? Well, I, I got involved when I first invested in Ethereum, and I got involved in a kind of purely informational way, because that's when I started investing. But as I looked into it deeper, I realized that there's more and more scams out there. And it's not like writing or investigating scams is my my primary kind of part of what I'm doing. But it is taking up more and more of my time as I find it increasingly more interesting and challenging to find these, especially those elaborate, more more kind of carefully planned scams. But yeah, basically what I try to do is just provide 
technical education to people who might not be technically literate or able to kind of recognize the wheat from the chaff, uh, so to speak. So Bitfalls is there to just kind of give people a shot at understanding this technology that only enthusiasts understand for now. And to be honest, most enthusiasts don't even understand. They just gamble right now. So my aim is to make this technology and everything that comes with it, both good and bad, kind of more familiar to civilians. Do you have a sense for how much volume in the market is due to scamming and people who have a good understanding of market manipulation? Or or is it is that even something that you can get a sense for? Oh, yeah, it's I would say the vast majority is manipulated in some way or another. Now, it's not all scams. I would say maybe 10% of the entire market cap is actually usage and usefulness driven. The rest is kind of a mishmash of uh, maybe some scams, some frauds, some pump and dumps, some pure good old hype and uh, tape painting, really standard old stock market tricks from the 80s and before it was all regulated. So all of those wolves of Wall Street now have a new kind of uh, battlefield on which to mow down civilians and just kind of practice their craft. Everything they, they, they've learned but weren't allowed to practice, now they can again. And I firmly believe that the vast majority of volume is, is well, either fraudulent or based on people falling into bear or, or bull traps. So this is the same kind of stuff that people did with penny stocks in, what was it, the 80s or the 70s? Yeah, well, the pump and dump parts of it are are the penny stock stuff, yeah. So yeah, people just buy off a little little coin that has little value, maybe even make their own because it's really trivial to make your own token these days and put it on coin market cap or similar sites. And then just, you know, do what you want with it. There was an instance where one coin shot up, I think, uh, into the top 10 on coin, mar- coin market cap for 10 minutes or so, just because someone put an order on one of the exchanges for, I think it was like $60, and the coin was priced at $1. And since the coin market cap kind of aggregates this information from all the exchanges, it saw this price hike on one of them, and the entire average shot up so much that it kind of simulated a, a gain of several billion dollars of value. So yeah, the whole market is very easy to manipulate when you know what you're doing. The people who are starting these ICOs, who are spinning up these coins, are they mostly people who are aware that they are basically taking part in a scam? Or, you know, are these people morally confused? Are they technologically confused? Are they actually trying to start companies? What are the compositions of the people who are starting these ICOs? And then there's, of course... You know, the, the, there's the the other things that have been pumped and dumped, like arguably Ripple has been kind of taken over. It looks like Ripple looks like it was taken over by the pump and dump world and hawked. Although I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't be speaking like that because I don't know for sure if that's the case. But are any of these ICOs or like how many of them are legitimate? Are people who are really thinking like, oh, I am going to be working on this project in five or ten years? Oh yeah, there are. I'd say around 50% of them are do have good intentions. Maybe 90% of those 50% are delusional. Most of them think kind of like I'm bringing something something to this market that that no one ever has and so on. But the reality is not every project would benefit from a blockchain. In fact, most would be actively harmed by a blockchain in terms of technology. And people are just shoving the word blockchain onto everything in an attempt to just hype it up. Plus, there's the appeal of just getting a lot of money quickly without any kind of uh, KYC or any kind of accredited investor checking and SEC crackdown and a global reach. It's all very appealing. We also develop at Bitfalls, we also develop smart contracts, we also develop ICOs. We have one running right now. And the team behind it, I mean, we're just the, the blockchain and the blockchain kind of part of things, which, to be frank, is very, very removed from the actual core of the thing that's being developed most of the time because it's just it's it's something you can tack on it's like uh when you have a website you can change its design without changing the underlying logic and 
that's kind of what blockchain is. It's kind of disconnected from the core of things in most cases. And there are, there are many teams that actually do believe that they'll make a successful product out of it. But unfortunately, even those are highly susceptible to kind of, we can call them attacks from outside when pump and dumpers just see them as excellent material on which to turn a profit. And once this is done to a coin, it'll either die in a fire or it'll kind of get a permanent little price boost, but then it'll often freeze the progress of the project for one reason or another. Maybe the the owners will get greedy, maybe they'll get scared of what's happening. Who knows? But yeah, I've seen a lot of things happen to a lot of projects and there's a healthy mixture of both hopefuls and hopeless and those that are just making it to the scam. Yeah, I've interviewed four or five people who have done ICOs and the projects range from things where it really makes sense to have a token. So, you know, if you were starting an arcade, you know, you need an, an arcade typically has tokens where you walk into the arcade and you spend the tokens to play video games within the arcade. And that is a context where a token would make sense. There are other things like, you know, maybe you're spinning up a hotel search website and you decide you want to do an ICO because you want to issue a currency for people who just are going to spend money on hotels and then they can accumulate tokens over time so that they can spend their tokens on booking hotels instead of spending money. And then it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that it kind of makes sense to have a token for just purchasing hotels, you know, but you could just also have gift certificates. You know, it's arguably not something that you really need this notion of decentralization and consensus mechanisms in order to keep a close tab on the the economy. You know, do you really need a consensus mechanism over the economy of hotel reward points? I mean, maybe, but arguably not, right? Like, would you say that's accurate? Like, you know, for, for so many of these products, it's like, this is not an economy where you need a decentralized consensus mechanism over the token. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. If like the example that you, you just mentioned, like the arcade, yes, it does make from a really far away standpoint sense because arcades have always had tokens. You have Chuck E. Cheese where you collect tokens. You have arcades with games where you, instead of quarters, you can put in tokens. This does not need decentralization. A blockchain is a horrible database. It is, however, free, almost free infrastructure. And yes, making a token on it will allow you to deploy a new coin that only you own in a matter of minutes. Anybody can spin up a new token. However, it is a database which is very expensive to use long term. It does not make sense for an arcade, especially one that is not global and that does not need to consolidate its token expenses and whatnot across an entire franchise globally. It does not make sense for its patrons to be using any kind of token because any database will be much, much better at at doing that. So when projects do that, uh, they're not exactly thinking in terms of, yes, the technology needs this. They're clearly thinking in terms of, yes, we can get a lot of money for this. And yes, we can get a lot of startup uh, venture funding from this without giving away our company to who knows what kind of uh, Anderson Horowitz uh, people. And we can just stay in control of our company and people can give us our money and we don't have to explicitly guarantee, guarantee anything to them because this is not regulated. So I do get the appeal of this, but does it need a token on a blockchain? No, definitely not. So the term pump and dump, which you wrote this really detailed article about, and you talked about the pump and dumping ecosystem. Pump and dump typically means you've got this the set of concentric circles of where you have the inner circle of the people who are going to initiate a pump and dump. And these are people who start the pump and dump with some number of tokens, or perhaps they decide that they're going to do an orchestrate a pump and dump, and they buy a bunch of a shitcoin, a really uh, low-quality cryptocurrency, so they can buy thousands and thousands of units of it. And then they advertise that, oh, this coin is going to rise in value 
after they have already purchased it. They do things like information hacking, like just spreading the word through Telegram groups and yeah. Discord groups, maybe through Reddit, maybe through Twitter bots, and other people find out about it and they think they are on the inside. And gradually the information makes it out into larger and larger concentric circles of people. And at some point, the insiders have sold what they have pumped. And on the outermost rim of these concentric circles, you have the bag holders who end up holding the bag. They end up holding the low-quality token and losing money on it uh, because they were buying on, you know, on the uptick. And then all they saw was just the sell-off. So they saw their, their loss in value. So the pump happened. You know, the increase in value happened and the insiders made money and then the dump happened and the, quote, bag holders, the retail investors who were not so intelligent, ended up holding the currency and losing value on it. Did I get it right? Is that an accurate depiction of how pump and dump works? It is of one type. One note, I wouldn't necessarily call them not as intelligent as much as maybe naive because they collect their information from the wrong sources. Maybe a better word is lazy, because even if they invest even maybe half an hour into something they, they plan to, to throw their money at, they would see what it's about. Unfortunately, most don't, because there's a lot of these, well, crypto millionaires, let's call them, who just do not know what to do with all this digital money. And they will jump at every opportunity. That is why the scams... These are like people who bought Ethereum when it was low, and they just like made a ton of money, and so they've got a bunch of money to play with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they go by what sounds good, and that's kind of why stuff like Dascoin and OneCoin and other Ponzi schemes do well, because they promise a lot of stuff, and Ethereum promised a lot of stuff, and it turned out to be legit, so who are they to say that this won't? But in general, what you described was a kind of a slow pump and dump group, which is kind of designed to rid people who themselves became bag holders for one reason or another off their bags. What I was actually investigating in the article was one of the direct pump and dump groups where a group is formed with all the circles fully and completely before the pump begins, but it's it's known that what's being pumped is a shitcoin. So nobody has any delusions that the coin is ever going to have any value. No one involved thinks that it's ever going to be anything good. There's no marketing in terms of this coin is awesome, please buy it. There is only, okay, guys, we are now collectively all buying in order to create the illusion of a high trading volume and to lure other people who are not part of us at all to buy it from us. So the direct group does have those layers. And yes, the owners actually most often buy the coin a few days earlier so that the pre-pump, as it's called, uh, is not visible on the graph. Because when you look at the graph and there's a spike way before or immediately before the pump begins, then it's kind of obvious that the owners of the group are trying to scam their own people. But if they buy it a week or two earlier, people don't see that spike on the graph and then it's, then it's all right. So what they do is they get as many people in the group as possible. And those groups are advertised on Facebook and on Twitter and everywhere else. And when they reach a critical mass, that's kind of when the pump and dumps begin. And usually it's actually the, the first one or two pumps are legit. So anybody joining in in the first or, or second one does actually make some money because it's possible because they do a good job. They do not scam their own people. They don't pre-buy a coin. They actually show them that it's possible. And, and this good word of mouth brings in more people. Once a group gets to uh, several thousand members, then it's kind of time to strike from the internal circles. And that's when the biggest scams happen, when, when the biggest sell-off uh, hits the outermost circles. And that's kind of the most direct pump and dump group that's, that's very active today. Okay, so let's simplify it for people. Let's say you've just got two chat rooms. You've got one chat room where everybody is in it. You've got the inner circle people, you've got the outer rim, you've got the bag holders. Everybody's just sitting in this chat room and they're all saying, all right, there's this shit coin, whatever it is, it's Tron or something. We're going to buy a bunch of it and then we're going to pump it and then we're all going to sell a bunch of it and everybody in the chat room is going to make money. And then there is a second chat room where it is only 
the inner circle members, like the the very savvy organizers. What's the ratio of people in the tight inner circle, the people who are actually orchestrating this? What's the ratio of that amount of people to the people who are in the larger chat room? How big are the are the big chat rooms, and how small are the inner circle groups? Oh, it's one to a thousand, easy. That's usually two to five, maybe ten members who are in on it. And they'll just load up on the coin beforehand. Maybe in the... It depends on the market cap of the coin, but it's going to be in the range of maybe half a Bitcoin to a Bitcoin per person. And the pumping happens towards the outer group, the other group, which has several thousand members. And they won't tell them which coin it's about until they've already loaded up and until everything's been decided in the inner group and so on. So once it happens, the outer group will just start buying the coin that the inner group decided on. They'll just tell them, okay, we just decided on this coin. Start buying now, now, now. Everybody starts buying on that one exchange. It's important that it happens on one exchange because only volume on one exchange will move the value, will move the kind of the price of the coin on that one exchange, which is what they're aiming for. And then it's kind of the, the pumping phase is when the outer circle is supposed to just buy a lot of the coin and spam the chat box and, and their social media channels with urges to buy the coin because it's kind of exploding in price and it's going to be the next Bitcoin and everybody should get in on it. And that's when the outer circle is actually buying from the inner circle, which was preloaded with the coin. So the inner circle gets rid of the coin and then one of two things can happen. The outer rim can lose money and because nobody else managed to buy from them and they actually bought at a higher price and then the price dropped and those people will leave the group and just basically will never be heard from again. Or they can be successful. They can actually sell their coin at a higher value to someone else, which is often the case when... For example, in the outer group, there are some tech-savvy users who have set up scripts which can buy on a given exchange with the click of a button, with the press of a key, actually, not the click of a button. So what they do when they see a coin published, which is being pumped, so when the inner group tells them it's this coin, they will just input the code of that coin into this script and hit enter. And their script will execute much faster than anyone else's who is actually waiting for the web page to reload, to open the graph, to click buy, and so on. So it's actually the outer rim competing amongst themselves as well. Yeah, and those that, that kind of make money on that will spread the good word, bring in more members, and so on and so forth, until the group has had enough and lost all trust and needs to disband, which happened with a very popular and young, but also very successful, briefly successful group, the Stratton Cryptmont group, which had its own dedicated website set up, its own dedicated system for pumping and dumping. And I was following them before I went to Asia this month in February. I came back and they're, they're already gone. So that was one of the more faster resolved ones. Did you talk to anybody in these groups? Yeah, I did. I talked to some of the uh, supposed organizers and I'm not 100% sure that they were on the innermost circle. I'm pretty sure they were much higher up than the outer rim that I was in. And what did they tell you about themselves? Nothing. Essentially nothing. They value anonymity uh, far too much because for them, all that matters is just shutting down a Telegram or Discord account, making a new one and starting over as soon as one group falls apart. Very often, it's really high degree of overlap between the organizers, between the various groups. And you can kind of see it by, their, by the way that they post messages, by their emoji patterns, by, their, by the GIFs that they post. It can be kind of obvious who's kind of back from the dead under a new name and organizing things again. And it's all very interesting. It's the organizations that are going to be investigating these are going to have a field day because there's actually quite a big trail left behind. Oh, really? Okay, tell me about that. Like, First of all, who is going to be policing this behavior? What are they doing that's illegal? And what is the trail of information? Well, pump and dumping by definition is illegal in, in any kind of financial market that is regulated. So as soon as regulations come in about crypto, and they are already kind of taking down the ICOs and all the... Like, for example, the celebrity pumps were one of the first ones to be cut down by the SEC and, and I think CFTC. 
So when Paris Hilton started pushing Lydian coin when they paid her to kind of tweet about that on Twitter to 16 million followers, you can be pretty sure that some of those were left holding the bag. And you can also be pretty sure that the organizers of that pointless coin also went home with rather full wallets. When Floyd Mayweather was paid to advertise Contra, that crypto credit card that turned out to be nothing but uh, the usual vaporware, he was also told to take that endorsement down and post his Instagram post and Paris Hilton's tweet now no longer exist because they came after them. And they did actually have problems because of this. So it's only a matter of time before this gets serious. And it was actually, I think it was CFTC that published a memo recently, a, a week or two weeks ago, I think, where they said that any arrests and any monetary kind of fines that they can extract from pump and dump organizers, if you give them any information that leads to arrests and monetary damages, that you are eligible for 10 to 30% of the reward. They kind of manufactured a really nice uh, snitch marketplace there. And you can be sure that the people who lost money on those pump and dump groups are going to be coming after those organizers. There's going to be a lot of evidence collected and it's only a matter of time before people start going to jail. I think that's part of the reason why that group that I was watching also went offline during February. Do you have any sense for who these people are? Are they Chinese? Are they American? Are they Russian? Are they all of the above? Does it matter? I don't think it matters, but I got the feeling that, that a lot of them were American just by the spelling and kind of attitudes. I can't be sure, but I'm fairly like, I would say I'm 70% sure that the people behind the group that I uh, wrote about in the post were American, just based on the patterns that I, I recognized from managing authors and, and writing and stuff. I could be wrong, but it, it sounded American. I haven't seen any... To be honest, it could be that there's more Russian or Chinese pump and dump groups than there is English-speaking ones. I just haven't joined any of those because I didn't find them. And even if I did, I wouldn't know that I was in them if they were in another language. So I focus on the English-speaking ones, which I believe were American-led. Do you think that Ripple was pumped up? So we did a show about Ripple recently. Ripple is this... There is a company around this coin, Ripple... And it's a legit company, but their token is essentially defunct. Nobody's doing any development on it, but it is one of the tokens that rose the most in this recent cryptocurrency spike. And you could see it arguably, oh, maybe it rose because people are just confused or because people just have long-term faith in the Ripple organization, or more than likely... You have a coin that it, it's not clear if this would be categorized as a shit coin or not. Therefore, it makes it the perfect candidate to be pumped and dumped. What do you think happened with Ripple? I think it was that people were confused. Ripple is too big to be pumped effectively. It can be pumped by some super celebrities, but not as easily. It was more pumped by news and rumors and just naive people seeing something very, very cheap that they figured could go to millions without thinking about there actually being hundreds of billions of coins in circulation. So by default, it, it cannot go above a few dollars and even a few dollars, even a dollar is absurdly too much and way overvalued. Ripple on its own, I mean, nobody, really nobody believes in, in Ripple the cryptocurrency, the token. No one. The people who say that they believe in its future are lying and are actually bag-holding, I can guarantee that much because it really does not have a future. The protocol that they're building, the stuff that they're using with banks allegedly and so on, that might have a future, yeah. But the token itself is completely pointless and it gained value because of those rumors about it being added on, on Coinbase and... Now, I think again today or yesterday was another rumor, which again spiked its price. But in general, it's, it's not a typical pump and dump where a few people got together and said, let's, let's buy a few billion dollars worth of, of Ripple and drive its price up and then sell it for tens of billions of dollars. I don't think this happened. Could be that some power players did that, but I highly doubt it. People with that much liquidity play with bigger things that are more certain to, to yield some good gains. Mm -hmm. And 
What do you think about Tether? So Tether is another one of these things where you have these arguably, well, maybe they're bag holders, but people who are in the religion of Tether. It's like they they still believe in this thing, despite the fact, you know, all evidence points to Tether being not comfortably backed one-to-one with one dollar to one Tether, because otherwise, why would Tether, the company, you know, basically tell their auditors to leave them alone? Do you think Tether is another one of these very problematic circumstances in the crypto community? Oh, yes, very much. I'm very outspoken about Tether, and I've been on the receiving end of the Bitfinex banhammer on Twitter several times. You got you got banned? I got blocked by them, yeah. There is no doubt in any reasonable investigator's mind that Tether is entirely fraudulent and that they have printed unbacked Tethers since April of last year. And there is no doubt that the crash of Tether, which is coming, there is no doubt about it, will cause a nuclear winter in cryptocurrencies, the likes of which we haven't seen since 2013. What makes you so sure about that? Well, because once they do get investigated and they're playing with some pretty hot fire there, you, you do not get to call your token anything close to a dollar, even if it's a dollar Tether without invoking the wrath of the world police, which is America and SEC, they will be taken down with, with a formidable force. That's a guarantee. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the people behind it do live in the US. Some people are going to come knocking soon. And now I should say that I, I do wish that I'm wrong about this and that all of us who are kind of looking into it are wrong about it. But I'm not in this to be able to say I told you so eventually, because if I get to say I told you so, then it's too late and we've ruined everything. I kind of, I really want to stop it before it happens. And the only way to stop it before it happens is for people to realize what's, what's going on here. The problem here is that tether cancer has spread even though it was a fantastically awesome idea at first. I mean, having redeemable crypto fiat tokens transferable to other exchanges so you could kind of hedge your losses in in a stable coin while the market is falling and not have to get licenses for fiat handling from the various institutions is absolutely fantastic and priceless and would, would help the crypto community a lot. But the fact that they didn't stop when they lost their banking licenses means it's a ticking time bomb and it's not going to end well unless people put a stop to it. There's just no doubt about it. Why is the market so reliant on Tether? What makes Tether such a linchpin in powering the entire cryptocurrency market? All the exchanges that are using it, whether they started using it knowing it has no backing, whether they started using it when it still had backing, or whether they were just too eager to start using it and didn't do any research at all, they're now complicit. And anyone who has their holdings in Tether on any exchange which supports Tether because they just saw their favorite crypto dropping and they put it in Tether to wait for the dip and buy the dip and so on. If the overseeing body that will take Tether down eventually and Bitfinex rules that Tether is absolutely unbacked and useless, Tether has the potential to lose all value overnight. This would basically, it would be as harmful to the crypto industry as the 20... 2015 ban of the uh, rupee notes in India was when they overnight banned 80% of the real paper currency in circulation without warning. This is what would happen here. All the exchanges that have their assets in, in Tether would essentially have those assets reduced to zero. People wouldn't be able to exchange it back to their crypto and a lot of people would lose a lot of money. It would be a crash much worse than empty Gox was because it would take down many exchanges. Let's unpack this a little bit so we can at least pull out some education from this impending catastrophe. So Tether is an instrument for liquidity in the market because, well, the one thing that that I've heard, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, is if you translate a holding of cryptocurrency, let's say you've got some NEO, 
and you want to turn that NEO into USD, or you want to get out of NEO, let's say you, you were involved in NEO when NEO got pumped at, at, at some point, and you want to get out of NEO, but you want to get into USD, but you don't want to actually be into USD USD, because if you pull out of NEO into dollars, then you have to interact with the banking system, which means that you're going to get taxed for that transaction. And if you pull out of out of NEO and you go into Tether, then it's not necessarily going to be associated with your identity. Is that accurate? Is Tether basically an instrument for tax evasion in that sense? No, no, not at all. Okay, uh, okay. Because the only way to get Tether is is on a exchange that requires your identity, that requires you to verify your identity. And in that way, you are more susceptible to taxation and tax evasion if you do this on the exchange than if you just cash out into another crypto and take it to a paper wallet. Okay, so then the risk that we're talking about here is really just the idea of the bank run, where you've got all these exchanges and they're holding a bunch of Tether and they're counting that tether against their balance sheets. And when the tether all drops to zero or 13 cents or whatever, then these banks may not have enough, essentially, money in reserve to pay people who want to cash out. And then there's going to be bank runs. And essentially, because the exchanges operate like banks in many cases... And the bank runs will result in uh, just people who are going to get soured on the market. Is that's the scenario that you're more concerned about? In a way, because the exchanges that do have tether, they do not have to have a equal balance of dollars on their account. The fact that they have those tethers is allegedly proof that they paid in USD to tether the company and tether the company is supposed to have that money in, in its accounts so the tether on an exchange is just a representation of the dollars that the exchange paid to tether the company now if an exchange has a billion tether in its in its accounts all spread out across all the various users or their own wallet or whatnot and the SEC or some other oversight overseeing body takes down Tether, the company, then those deposits will become worthless. And nobody will want to buy Tether because it will essentially become worthless. It, it will not be, even though Tether, the company, claims that they do redeem Tethers for actual money, there is no absolutely no proof that this ever happened, that anybody ever did this. And their own terms of service say that they do not do this, that they have no obligation to do this, and they make no promise to do this. So even now, they don't actually redeem the tethers for money. The amount of tethers in circulation all over the world has never, ever decreased, which indicates that there's never any burning of these tokens going on, which indicates that there's never any cash outs happening. No one ever cashed out tethers for money. Now, they do have various excuses for this, which don't make sense because they don't line, line up uh, time-wise. But essentially, if everybody suddenly becomes absolutely certain that this is impossible because Tether disappears, because they get closed down, then the Tether, we know, loses its value. Right now, it's pegged to $1 because the exchange is hard-coded it. It's not on $1 because of demand. It's not organic. The exchanges have hard-coded a variation limit into the price of Tether, which can go up maybe 5%. More often, that's 25 to 3%. That's why you'll never see Tether go above $1.05, and you'll never see it go below $0.95, cents because it's hard-coded no matter how many people buy or sell it. Now, if exchanges realize that they will never get their deposits back, you can be pretty sure that this one-to-one -one pegging will disappear from exchanges as well. And even if they uh, continue to be allowed to operate, which they might not be because they are now complicit in this unbacked fake dollar crime. This is what essentially worries me, that a lot of people who were just using tethers as this amazing idea of hedging your losses without cashing out, without suffering the banking fees and delays, without having to kind of give away a lot of your money to the banks when you're trying to, to just get out of a crypto, 
that those people will lose their money. And this will kind of hit the confidence of the entire crypto industry so hard that it's going to be very harmful for everyone. Okay, so again, I guess I'm having trouble identifying exactly what the point of, like, how Tether leverages the community, how there is so much leverage due to Tether. So I think the one point that you just made is that people can get out of their currency aggressively into Tether, which purports to be a stable coin because it's it purports to be tied one-to-one to a dollar, and there's not much proof of that. Um, and so is your main argument that when the illusion of the stable coin is removed from the ecosystem, that is going to cause a such friction in the way that the market operates? Is that what you're saying? That too, but also no exchange that has Tether right now will allow moving it in any direction if Tether, the company, gets clamped down because they will get ordered not to do business with Tether anymore. They will get ordered not to use these illegal tokens anymore. And they will be in a lot of danger if they continue to do so. So they will disable all withdrawals, all trades, all all actions involving Tether. So a lot of people who are who now have Tether holdings on these exchanges will lose their money effectively. Oh. They will just stay without it. I see. So you're just saying that there are tons of people throughout the internet who hold Tether on various exchanges, and there is going to come a point in time, the Tether reckoning, where all these people are going to get notified, hey, you have Tether, but unfortunately we can't do anything with that. And the people who have these holdings of Tether are going to get soured because they can't do anything with that Tether. Yes, exactly. Hmm. It's like uh, when Empty Gox was going down, there were, there's this iconic photo of those two guys in front of their headquarters, you know, like, how liquid are you or where's my money? That's essentially it. If your account balance on the exchange's site says you have 500 Bitcoin, that's just a number in their database. It's not reading from the blockchain. It's not, it's not an actual wallet. It's just a number in the database that is occasionally synced up with the database if the exchange is liquid enough. When you, when you transfer a coin into another coin on an exchange, that transfer doesn't actually happen it, other than in their database and then gets consolidated later because their holdings remain the same. They just attribute them to different users. And if you have a number on an exchange, that number suddenly becomes untradable for anything else. You have effectively lost that money. You basically have farmwell coins that you cannot use or move. And you were left without all of your kind of hedging money that you used to kind of get out of a dip. You now have nothing. Okay, let's zoom out a little bit. So are you personally excited about this technology? Do you think it's completely overhyped? Where do you think we are in the legitimate breakthroughs versus hype cycle of cryptocurrencies? I think we're in a good path. I think we are slightly overhyped and the market could use a bit more correcting. But as someone who develops smart contracts and decentralized apps and really enjoys it. I haven't enjoyed developing something since I, like this much since I started like web development 10 years ago. I think it's a very promising technology and I can't wait to try every new feature that comes out. That said, it does have a lot of problems that need ironing out and the political wars inside the crypto ecosystem are not helping at all. I hope things get resolved and we get a lot more peace very soon, but I'm not exactly optimistic about that. I think it's a race to Web 3.0 and whoever gets there first will be the true game changer. But right now I think it's kind of, it's all very, very beta and very shoddy and very dangerous to play with. The amounts that get in, get poured into ICOs are just staggering and I mean, it's it's really scary. It's really scary and it's really dangerous. And I, I hope the most glaring issues get ironed out fast because the technology really does have a lot of potential. But at this point, the vast majority of the tokens are dramatically overvalued. 
what are you developing? What are you building? So I know you have this blog, Bitfalls, which is writings about cryptocurrency scams, as well as just other various news in the space. But you also have a business, Coin Vendor. And as you mentioned, you're a smart contract developer. Also, your background is pretty interesting. I guess you studied English. At some point, you got into cryptocurrencies. You became a developer. I wish we had more time to go into your biography, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you're working on. Well, Bitfalls is actually a fully-fledged company. We have like employees writing stuff for us and are growing, and the articles are coming out soon. We'll be releasing courses. We are kind of aiming to publish technical content and tutorials about Ethereum development. And that includes the stuff that we built, which is right now we've built a few ICOs and custom tokens. But we are working on a lot of interesting decentralized apps that just use blockchain technology behind the scenes and that are transparent to the user. And many of those are just experiments that don't actually, like we said before, desperately need the blockchain, but they are interesting experiments nonetheless. And I'm very excited about the prospect of, for example, decentralized web applications stored kind of on the blockchain, because Ethereum, as you might know, is three-part kind of project. There's Ethereum itself, which is kind of the world computer, which executes this virtual code that you write in smart contracts. There's the Swarm protocol, which is used for decentralized storage uh, files so that you don't store information on the blockchain because it's a horrible database. It's very slow and very expensive. And Swarm protocol ties directly into Ethereum so you can host stuff on it. And then there's the Whisper protocol, which is used for just chatting, sending messages along the blockchain without actual permanent persistence so that you can send messages that like events and like notifications and like temporary offers, for example, an order on an order book that you just want to stay alive for a day and not forever on the blockchain. So that you don't have to pay transaction fees for these trivial exchanges off. And these three kind of make the world computer that we all run and we all store each other's files on, on each other's computer, which kind of combined together with Ethereum nodes and with the e-node system that governs the node discovery. Like when you fire up an Ethereum node on a network, it's going to find the nearby node on the network if you give it the address. And every node already connected to that node will become accessible to the previous one. So once you connect two nodes together, it's like a virus. It spreads automatically to every node available, every node known. And it's really, really hard to take down. So once we have this on a global scale that, that's really scalable fast and, and works as intended, we will have a true decentralized internet immune to DNS, immune to IP addresses, and immune to kind of censorship from ISPs, from governments, and so on. And that's what really excites me. I want to be part of this decentralized web where we don't have to, where freedom of speech is also electronic and not just personal. It's going to change everything. And I've done some shows recently about getting off of the centralization of Ethereum, where right now you've got the centralization of the miners and proof of stake is quite a brilliant effort at getting away from the centralization of the miners. Whether or not it will work, it makes me optimistic that we're going to figure out something that gets us away from the hardware centralization, because today you could arguably say, well, Ethereum is still centralized with the concentration of mining power. I believe that there's still a concentration of mining power for Ethereum. And also, you know, I read an abstract recently about, what is it called? I think Plasma, which is the the sharding of the smart contracts, which is like you look at the, the model for deploying smart contracts today, and it's like, okay, you have to replicate everything from every single smart contract onto every single full node. And from a high-level view, it looks like this is the most inefficient thing ever. But then you look at the proposals to shard it, and you start to see, oh, actually, there's very creative ways of making this more efficient without sacrificing decentralization. And it just makes... It makes me optimistic. I'm like, I feel like I've seen this before with, for example, you know, the early days of MapReduce. You know, you see the first efforts uh, to implement MapReduce with Hadoop in like the very early 2000s. And it was like, wow, this is really slow and it's really hard to process big data. And then you fast forward to today and it's like we've had 
so many advances that it, you know you can just have streaming, fast updating, large scale map reduces over terabytes, and we've seen this before. We know how to solve these problems. And it seems like this stuff is just going to become usable. And then we have what we can do today, which is basically like crypto kitties or launching ICOs. And, you know, it's unfortunate that's all we can do. But at the same time, we can look historically and recognize where we are. And if we're patient and we're prudent and we're doing things like what you're doing with Bitfalls, where you're just like, let's invest in in building some educational resources. Let's look at what toy applications we can build that are going to explore the immutable truths of cryptocurrency development, of smart contract development. And, you know, we'll go from there and we'll learn to grow as the community grows. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it sounds like you're planting a flag in a place that's only going to grow. I think the education space sounds like a great place to, to plant that flag today. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, thanks. Like, well, like you mentioned, like the CryptoKitty stuff, it is a bit silly. It is it is a silly game, and we had a. I looked into fifteen alternatives to CryptoKitties the other day, and there's a post on Bitfalls about it, and it's it's really ridiculous what people have come up with. But in a way, CryptoKitties was the best stress test the Ethereum network could have hoped yes, for. Yes, exactly. It was like it was the beneficial. It wasn't an attack. It was a beneficial app, a toy that at the same time tested the network, showed us the problems and brought the crypto space closer to civilians with a cute game that they could relate to. It is the best thing that happened to Ethereum in a, in a long time, and I hope many more CryptoKitties crash our system so we can learn from it. <laughs> okay, Bruno. Well, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate you making the time. And you know, if you've got anything else in the future that you think is interesting, I feel like we explored the negative, pessimistic side of things today. But it sounds like you are somebody who is equally recognizing of the optimistic side of this space. So I hope we can talk about something a little bit more optimistic in the future. <laughs> All right, you got it. Thank you for having me. Okay, Bruno, great talking to you. Wow. Wow.